You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. John 16, 16, where we have a theme that we've been getting into today, how suffering and sorrow sometimes give way to great joy, which sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, usually not the kind of system we think of, but let me read from Jesus here, who's looking at his disciples and trying to tell him that he's about to go, he's about to die. And they they always struggle to understand this because they're looking to bring about God's kingdom in a different way than this, but, but they... Uh, Uh, This is yet another time where they kind of ignore him and don't really get the point. So Jesus says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father... So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. This is classic discipleship 101 right here. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, and he said to them, don't you love that? Jesus like, a little while you won't see me, a little while you will. And then walks away. <laughs> They're like, I know what you're thinking. What did I mean? And I'm kind of like, I don't think you need to be prophetic to, to get it this time. Like, <laughs> I feel like you set us up for this. Um, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him and he said to them is this what you were asking yourself what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me truly truly I say to you you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. The cross does so much in the Bible, but we often kind of miss it. And it helps to connect the cross to the overarching themes of the Bible to kind of see the the full story. At the start of creation, you have Adam and Eve, the first humans, who instead of wanting to learn knowledge from God, decide to learn knowledge from a lesser God. That there's another divine being in the, the courtyard in the Garden of Eden. It's a cherubim or a seraphim. It's a It's an angelic-like being. And seraphim in the Bible, which are angelic beings, that word basically means fiery serpent. So it's not that weird when you find a serpent guarding a a special tree that humans aren't supposed to eat from, as, as the seraphim do. They protect sacred space. 
And when Adam and Eve come before this other divine being, this little G God, if you will, they don't find themselves being pushed away by the serpent, but instead this divine being has gone rogue. He invites them in, come, come here, come, come eat. I mean, what did, what did the big G God say? What did the boss say? Like, you can't eat of it? Well, I'm one of the other divine beings around here. Let me tell you, it's fine. You know, he, your eyes will be opened. This is a knowledge that probably God wants to give you anyways. Just try it out for yourself. It's good for you. It'll be helpful to you guys. You can go from, from your lowly childlike status to something much better, to something greater. You can be elevated in this world even more than you already are. This, this will help you rule. And instead of listening to the big G God, they listen to the little G God. And this changes the cosmos. This puts authority into the little G God's hand that he didn't have before. And there are several passages that talk about this little G God, Satan, being kicked out of heaven for his sin and sent all the way down, not just to the earth, but even further down still to the underworld. He has led humanity into sin. The consequence for sin, therefore, is death. And so Satan is the Lord of death, the God of death, whereas Jesus calls the big G God, our God, the God of life. So Satan is pushed all the way to the ground, and the story of Eden tells the same thing. His legs are chopped off. He's kicked out of heaven. He's pushed down to the ground, but even further down still. He's a divine being, so he has power, but his rulership is not from the heavens anymore. He does not protect sacred space. He reigns over death. And so everyone who belongs with sin belongs with the consequence of death and therefore belongs in Satan's underworld kingdom. And see, the Old Testament just had this idea that all humans go to the underworld. There was glimmers of hope that if we're faithful to the big G God, to the one true God, maybe we'll go to heaven. But much of the Old Testament talks about going to Sheol, where the serpent rules, where the demons are, where the underworld is. But God does something in those early moments. He does not want to leave humanity like this, and so he promises Eve, one day you're going to have a descendant who's going to fix this. One day there will be a human that rises up who crushes the serpent's head, who crushes Satan's head, who crushes death's head, who crushes the underworld. One day, Eve, you're going to have a child who's going to put it right. Now, if you were given a prophetic word, guess what? You, you are constantly looking for that answer. I've had this in my own life. It was like, Ten years ago that I was given a prophetic word that I have constantly at every turn when it is reaffirmed, I'm like, is this the moment? Is it finally coming? Literally just yesterday, somebody gave another word that reaffirmed it, and I was like, is, is it now? Is it? <laughs> You're constantly looking for it. You're looking for the answer. When is it going to come? When does it come? Now, for us, when we read the Bible, we're just like, all right, we started at Ab or Abraham. We started at Adam and Eve. Pause for a few thousand years until we get to Jesus. But that's not the way you would be thinking in the Old Testament. You'd be thinking, who's the next descendant? Who's the one? And so suddenly Abraham is grabbed. 
And he's told that promise that was given to Eve that one day all the world would be blessed through a human descendant. Abraham, it's now coming out of your line. And you, though you can't have a child right now, one day you're going to be able to. Now, if you were given that word and you know the prophecies of Eve, what are you thinking that child's going to be? Probably the Messiah, right? The one who puts all things right. It's a miraculous baby child. Abraham and Sarah had this child at 100 and, and uh, he was 100 and she was 90 something. It doesn't usually work that way in case you're unaware of the science. But that's the promise. So that's a, that's a miracle baby right there. You'd be thinking this is the Messiah. And so the baby comes about, it's Isaac, and guess what? We don't even really know anything about him because the story just like goes by. And we're like, oh, I guess that wasn't the one. <laughs> All right. But then Isaac can't have kids. And we know that the line of that human descendant who's going to fix the world is supposed to come out of Isaac's kids, of which he has none. So we're like, what's going to happen? Well, God heals them, and then they give birth to a baby. And you'd be thinking, these are the ones. Again, we have another miracle child. They couldn't have a baby before, but now they can. And the first baby, instead of coming out like a human, looks like what? It looks like a, an animal. He's furry and red. It's like, what happened here exactly? <laughs> and then the other child, miracle child, because there's twins this time around, comes out and he's given a name, the cheater. That's what Jacob means. Next time you're worshiping, oh God of the cheater. Yeah, you just keep that in mind. Oh God of Jacob, oh God of the cheater guy. And we watch his life, and he's pretty immoral. He cheats everyone around him until he learns his own lesson when his uncle cheats him. Neither of these guys seem like the material that's going to fit the fix the world. And both of them have sin ingrained in their lives. That thing that leads to the consequence of death, that leads to the underworld where Satan reigns. And the world's gotten more complicated, too, because the Bible tells this, this fantasy story about how angels cross the boundaries and they procreate with humans and they create giants, giants that stick around throughout the Old Testament. They're before the flood, they're after the flood, they make new clans after the flood, some of them live among the Philistines and they're not completely finished until Goliath and his brother and a few others are wiped out during David's time. And then the Bible goes on to say that those giants then become part of the underworld. And there's other Jewish literature that says the angels that crossed those boundaries, they were put in prison in the underworld. And so now you have human sin. You have angelic sin. You have sin on both sides of the spiritual and the physical cooperating together to create massive amounts of sin. And you have the underworld growing in power as more demons seem to join it through their fallenness from heaven and the whole thing's just out of control. The cosmos is all out of whack. And we keep watching and we keep hoping for that miracle child that's going to fix it. And there's some glimpses throughout the Bible where we think they might be showing up. Solomon might be one. Solomon appears. God gives him what? His wisdom. The same kind of wisdom that they were supposed to have in the Garden of Eden. So we're like, maybe Solomon's the one. He's a king. He's the one who's finally going to put everything right. He, he can reign over us. He can fix everything. Why? Because unlike the rest of us humans that grab wisdom from the tree, 
and followed the little G God, Solomon asked the big G God for his wisdom. Maybe this is the one who will fix it all. And then you read his story and he breaks seemingly every conceivable like major notion of how to king over people well. <laughs> it's like, okay, maybe that wasn't it. Until we finally get to Jesus. Jesus, too, becomes that miracle baby, reminding us of Abraham and Sarah, of Isaac and Rebekah, throwing our minds back about, about that human that would come one day through this line of Abraham, of which Jesus is genetically related, that one day that human would rise up and Jesus comes about and he lives a sinless life, the Bible tells us. He listens to the Holy Spirit and therefore pursues God's wisdom. He does every conceivable thing the right way. Now, if a human did everything right and didn't sin, where do they not belong? They don't belong with the consequence of death. And therefore, they don't belong in the underworld, and therefore, they don't belong with the little g-god who reigns over the underworld. And so Jesus flips the tables on Satan. Satan is so used to humans belonging to him that he doesn't even stop to think about the fact that Jesus has never sinned. Instead, he enters into Judas, is what the Bible says, and Satan oversteps his bounds, trying to get Jesus killed, whom Satan has no right to killing. Jesus is pulling a bait and switch. The cross is a Trojan horse. He is tricking Satan into this, as though he's setting out a feast of himself. Satan, you are always hungry to kill, kill, kill. Go ahead, come and do it. And the Bible says that if the powers and authorities the spiritual beings that would be. If the spiritual beings of this cosmos, the little g-gods, had any idea what they were doing, they would have never put Jesus up on the cross. Why? Because it flipped everything. Jesus is now brought into great suffering. And from a human perspective, it seems like nothing is happening, like nothing can happen. It seems impossible. It is unmiraculous. It is the worst thing that they could have ever conceived of, the Messiah, the sinless one, the one empowered with prophetic gifting beyond any other human being there has ever been, now hanging on a cross, now breathing his last breath, and now dead and you don't conceive of somebody coming back from a cross. He's just dead to them. The disciples feel like everything is over. Like this was the miracle baby, they thought, but no more. It didn't work out. It didn't happen. They begin to forget the little while that they have to wait. But then in a little while, things will be well again. They cannot conceive, and neither could you, if you had been there of this great suffering giving way to great victory. And everything goes quiet. They're hiding behind locked doors. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They're scared of the population. They're afraid they're gonna get crucified next. But while the disciples are doing nothing, while the world seems completely still, while it seems like there's been this great loss, the Bible tells a crazy story happening in the underworld. 
Jesus has gone to Sheol. Jesus has gone to Hades. He's gone to the place where the Lord of death is, where Satan is reigning. Jesus has been turned over to the consequence of sin, even though he has none in him. And what a surprise it must have been in the underworld when Jesus begins to walk up to the spirits in prison. In other words, those angels that crossed the line and procreated and made the giants, the Bible brings them up in the New Testament. They're locked up in chains in the underworld. And Jesus goes over to them and proclaims to them. It's the same kind of thing that the book of Enoch had Enoch doing. That Enoch went up to those angels that sinned and said, your judgment is still final. Now Jesus enters the underworld. And you can imagine those angels being like, ha, we got you. We killed you. You thought you were going to fix everything, but look where we brought you. And Jesus looking at them and proving to them, I don't got any chains. You guys got chains? Oh, I see. Yeah, I don't belong here. I got to go. <laughs> and Jesus beginning to walk away from these angels and them thinking to themselves, whoa, 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 wait, what's going on? This is not how this is supposed to work. When you kill a human, you kill a human. Where's he going? And then Satan, who has been allotted the power of death because humans have catered that over to him, Jesus walks up to Satan and takes those keys. These don't belong to you anymore. So I'm going to take those, yoink. And where's the front door again? It's over there. Okay, I got to go. I'll catch you all later. <laughs> Peace. And then Jesus walks back up to earth, puts on his new body, and a little while later, the disciples realize that while it's been quiet where they've been, it's been busier than ever underneath them. And then Jesus goes from there to ascend into heaven and then sends his Holy Spirit so that all of us can be empowered to beat sin, not just later, but in the rest of this life right now. If we really listen to the Holy Spirit, he will also help us put on sinlessness. He will also grow us in character. He will also empower us with the kind of miraculous things that he empowered Jesus with. And we're left in that space for a little while as well until Jesus comes back to put all things right. Oftentimes when we look at suffering, we look at it as an end. We look at it as a thing that we need to avoid at all costs. We look at it as that thing that will destroy our lives and leave us never better. Suffering crushes us. But that's not the story that the Bible tells. That the greatest redemptive story that's ever been told in all of history comes about because your God embraced suffering in a way that brought about great redemption. Now, we're not masochists here. We don't just embrace suffering and let people walk over us and hurt us. I've met people who have been in those situations, and I've seen how the Holy Spirit's been clear to them, hey, you need to learn to forgive this person, but not in a way where they just destroy you. So we're not like chasing down suffering. Yes, come and let me suffer. But when God calls us to it, when we have a sense that God is doing something and that it's going to be difficult, but it's going to be worth it, that's the kind of suffering that is, is worth stepping into. This is why martyrdom was so effective in the Old Testament, that there were some who they felt the call that they were going to have to embrace 
their own suffering, their own cross. And yet, history would say that when you stomped on a Christian, more Christians sprung up because the blood of the martyrs is a seed of the church. It seemed like that was the end of the church. But when Satan stomps his claws, he pokes his hand on your fire. You burn him back. And then he regrets it. What's your suffering? Where's the place that, that you did something you didn't want to do, but on the other side you were stronger for it, you were better for it? When I first started getting in deliverance ministry to start casting out demons, I, I did not realize how overwhelmed I was because I didn't really know what was going on and I was just trying to be obedient to learn this along the way. But I broke out in hives. I thought it was bad sushi. I legitimately thought this at first. But then I realized, I started Googling it. It was just like I had stress hives like every other day because the stress was just so high that I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know how to get through it until as I continued to be obedient, I started to learn the tricks. And there was a lot of stress and a lot of difficulty and a lot of pain that came throughout that season. But I came out the other side stronger for it. I came out the other side understanding it better. I came out the side, other side with stories that I would not trade in for the world. Things that I've seen God do that I don't even talk about them all the time because people just think you're crazy. And I've learned that when that's the reaction, you just don't throw your pearls in that direction because you don't want them to get eaten up and spit out. And so you have that story too. Something that, that you didn't want to face that you faced. And you came out the other side better for it. You have your own cross to bear. The Bible calls you to it. If you don't have a cross to bear, you might want to find it because it's somewhere. And as you join Christ in that suffering, you come out the other side stronger. A thing that you never thought you could conquer, that sin that always owned you, that addiction that overcame you. Jesus wants to empower you to get it back. And that's going to be difficult. That's going to require suffering. Anyone in a recovery group knows that. The kind of um, autonomy that they have to give up, that they no longer can be in charge of themselves, but they have to tell someone else to be in charge of them for them. That's part of the suffering. But they come out the other side saying, oh man, God really helped me overcome this and it was worth every step. And I would not have it different. I have met people that have gone through incredible pain. And yet they've come up to me and they've said, I wouldn't trade it. What God taught me through this and how much stronger he made me in my faith because of this, like, it was worth it. That's not to say that God put them in that pain. It's another problem we have where we think that God has ordained every last horrible thing that happens. But because they turned to God in their pain, God was able to use it for good. That's what God does. He takes the attacks of the enemy and he turns it around for good. He takes your pain and if you let him into it, he'll redeem it and turn it around for good. He has a way of flip-flopping things on Satan. 
And the Christian that is obedient to listening to the Holy Spirit so they can flip-flop things, like they give Satan a run for his money. All of Satan's bullets turn back into bullets on himself. So whatever great suffering you're going through right now, this probably doesn't sound like the most helpful message because nobody wants to hear it's going to be okay when it's not okay. But I'm telling you, if you take that and you give it to God, you will tell a much better story, a redemptive story, a story where suffering gives way to joy. Now, this moment right now will only be a little while in the grand scheme of things. Let me pray for you. God, there's many ways in which this message could be applied to us in a, a bad way. Those are not what I mean to preach. So anybody who's heard this message as a way of um, endorsing uh, some kind of pain that I'm not calling them to, would you just break those thoughts off of them right now? But for that kind of suffering that we've walked into to carry a cross for you, that kind of suffering that that is difficult but tells a better story and brings about redemption, we, we ask for strength to carry that well, to run the race well. That we might end up like Paul who bragged about how much he suffered for you. He had a whole list of the kinds of things that happened to him because he was obedient to you. And for him, those were trophies that the world might have looked at him and thought, look at you, man, you don't got it together at all. But Paul looked at that and thought, look how much I care about my God. That the disciples, after you were resurrected, they were uh, abused by the local religious leaders and they walked out of that space saying, look, we were worthy of suffering for Jesus, just like he suffered. God, our our Christian mentality in our country is so often to revolt against any little thing that seems unchristian, that seems like it's causing suffering on, on our religion or anything like that. We repent. Help us. Help us to embrace suffering your way. Help us as we endure it together, recognizing that the story you're going to tell is better than the one we could ever tell. Ours will always lead us back to sin, but yours, yours will change uh, the fabric of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.